Let's go to Acts, please. Acts 9. Stories of famous people uh, capture our attention. Uh, we like to find out backstories of people who are famous. Um, most Friday nights, my family, we uh, have a little tradition in our family. It's uh, make your own pizza night and movie night. And uh, we alternate between uh, who gets to choose which movie we watch. Um, and so this last weekend, uh, it was my choice to pick the movie. And so we had our pizza, and uh, we uh, got ready for the movie, and I threw a movie in uh, that I was the only person that had ever seen before, and it was called The Pistol, about a movie about Pete Maravich. All right, I don't know if you... Anyone, has anyone seen this movie? All right, okay, all right. I knew Mark Heinold had. I knew he would have, okay? Uh, and so this is a, a movie about, as I said, Pete Maravich, who was a uh, 1970s basketball star. And when I say he was a star, he really was. Uh, we don't really think much about uh, him today in today's uh, game and things like that, but I tell you, those who know basketball know Pete Maravich was an incredible basketball player. In fact, uh, he averaged, in his collegiate career, he averaged 44 points a game, okay, at LSU. He went to LSU. And, uh, and what makes that remarkable about that is that that was before uh, the shot clock, okay? So people would sit on the ball a lot longer and there's fewer shots taken and things like that. That was also before the three-point line, Okay, so uh, one person uh, charted out all of his shots and uh, determined that they think that he would have averaged more about 55 or 56 points a game uh, had the three-point line been in effect during that time. Also, what makes that statistic of averaging 44 points a game uh, amazing is that at that time in college, freshmen couldn't play on the varsity level, okay? And so he really did this in three years as opposed to what a lot of guys do or are able to do in four years. And so, you know, when this, this guy, he, he was a, a great basketball player, and he was known, uh, he got his nickname the pistol because of the way he shot from the hip kind of type thing, and someone said he looked like a, gun, uh, a gunslinger uh, shooting that way, and so that's how he got the name when he was uh, a freshman in high school or even uh, maybe even eighth grade. The point is, is that uh, this guy, it's just an incredible story to watch, and, and uh, we just enjoy looking at the backstory of him, and we know what he did in the pros, we know what he did in college, but this movie is kind of about how he got there. Well, today's text, okay, oh, and here's a, I, I didn't show you this, here's a, a picture, one's flattering, one's not, of uh, Pete Maravich, and uh, I wanted to show you that because that no-look pass, he really changed the game uh, and how basketball was played in a lot of ways, uh, in his style of basketball. A lot of what we see in today's game, uh, we can go back to Pete Maravich, and he was some of doing these things for the first time. I also wanted to point out the gloriously short shorts basketball players had to wear during those times, and the long baggy shorts, you can thank the University of Michigan for that, the Fab Five. That's a whole nother illustration, though. All right, but today's illustration, or today's uh, uh, text is about this famous person and their story and how it changed the course. Just like Maravich changed the course of basketball in a lot of ways, what we're going to read about today changed the course of Christianity and its movement and its growth. Of course, we're in Book of Acts and we're seeing how the, the book, uh, uh, the author Luke is writing to Theophilus. And, he's, and this is part two, the gospel is part one. In part two, he's, he, he's writing about how the gospel is continuing to move out from Jerusalem. Remember Acts 1.8? It's kind of like a, an outline of the book. And he says, you will be witnesses. Jesus is telling his disciples, you will be witnesses for me in both Jerusalem and Judea and the area around Jerusalem. Then he says, and then also in Samaria and into the ends of the earth. Remember last week we looked at with the Ethiopian, we saw that how that, that was considered the ends of the earth by the Romans of that day. Of, uh, and so the gospel is just going out. Today's text is about Saul, okay? A guy by the name of Saul. We were introduced to him a few weeks ago and uh, at the stoning of Stephen. Now, 
I'm probably during this sermon, there's going to be times where I'm going to say Saul and there's going to be times I'm going to say Paul, okay? I'm going to go back and forth between that. I'll try to be consistent with it. But I'm really talking about the same person. So if this is new to you, uh, I'm really talking about the same person because later on, Saul's name is going to get changed to Paul. He's going to be also called Paul. And uh, we're going to see this in a couple chapters here next. And then the, the writers just go on with Paul after that. So if I say Saul, if I say Paul in this message today, uh, yeah, I'm talking about the same person. So if that's confusing to you, I apologize. Um, but this, his conversion is recorded by uh, Luke no less than three times in this book alone here. And so uh, it, it's an important story, a backstory of a person who changed the course of gospel growth. I have the map on the screen here because uh, we're going to look at uh, where he went. And this, was a, this conversion happened on the road to Damascus. We're going to read about this in a second. So when I read the text, you can kind of have this in your mind. You see down in the bottom of the graphic there, you'll see Jerusalem is there. Now, we showed you a graphic the last week or two, or I can't remember exactly when, and it was blown up more around where that Dead Sea is in the lower section here. But to show you where Paul's travels eventually were, uh, would lead to, this is a map that shows his early travels. But you can see uh, that, yeah, thank you for the cursor there. There's Jerusalem. Then you go up to Damascus there. And so that's the road. That's a long road, okay? So that's about 150 miles, okay? So if you want to figure out, that'd be like walking from here to Chicago, okay? So from Madison to Chicago is 147 miles. This is right about the same distance, okay, to give you a, an idea of this. And so what I wanted to, I just wanted to have you to have that information in your head as we read through the text. I'm going to read uh, Acts chapter 9, verses uh, 1 through 22, and I would invite you to um, uh, follow along. Acts 9, verse 1 says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And we stop there. The way was a term used, an early term used for Christianity. Could come through different origins. Uh, one of it might have been traced back to when Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's some other possible origins of that term, but it seems that very, very early on, uh, the early Christians, they were known as the way, and so that's why he says this. Picking up in verse 3. Now, as, they went, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and, and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarshish named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and how he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles to, and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. 
And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. What I hope to do today in this message as we look at this background of the conversion of Saul, who later becomes Paul, I hope to show from three different people in this narrative that there's a, a subtle assurance that we can get from this. There is an overlooked hero in this narrative, and then finally there's a relatable conversion that we can, uh, we can learn from. Let me just ask God's blessing before we dive in, and then we'll look at this text in more detail. Father, we do want to... Uh, be sensitive to your spirit's leading here. God, I have this awesome privilege to stand in front of people and to teach from your word. And I pray that that's something that I, I never uh, take for granted. And I'm grateful for this privilege. And Father, I ask that uh, I would do so in a way that is um, pleasing to you, God. Uh, this is your word. This is your work that we're talking about. And so, Father, I pray, I, I just ask that whatever I say would be helpful uh, to the people who are listening, either in person or online. I pray that it would be beneficial, but I pray that it would also be uh, most importantly accurate to the text here and what you're communicating in this text. And so, Spirit of God, we, we just right now recognize our dependence upon you as either the person speaking or the person listening. We pray that you would receive all glory and honor, and we're thankful for this opportunity. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. I told you I want to look at a subtle assurance and then an overlooked hero and then finally a relatable conversion. So let's start with a subtle assurance that we see in this text. Did you notice Jesus' piercing question? Did you notice that? Jesus' question here is absolutely piercing. When, when Paul is, Saul is on this road, and, and he's on the road to Damascus, and then the light appears to them, and he falls down, and he says, the first question he asks Saul, he says, why are you persecuting me? Hey, how could Jesus say that? I mean, think about it. You know, Jesus was not in Jerusalem at this time. Jesus had ascended. Jesus was no longer on the earth. And so it wasn't like that Saul was going out and trying to capture Jesus and trying to kill Jesus. That had already been done, and Jesus rose again. Saul didn't believe that at the time, of course. But nonetheless, that he knew that Jesus wasn't on the scene. And so on this road to Damascus, he gets knocked off his horse. He falls down. He looks up. He sees this bright light. He's blinded by it. And then the question that he hears is, why are you persecuting me? That had to be piercing to Saul's soul. All of a sudden, everything that he had been doing, and all of a sudden, that all the energy that he had been putting into squashing the name of Jesus Christ, in that moment, it must have just pierced his soul to hear Jesus' voice say, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my disciples? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my friends? He says, why are you persecuting me? There's a lot of things that we can take away from that, but one of the things is that Jesus identifies with his followers. And that should be a great encouragement to you, that you, in your sinful state, in me, in my sinful state, as we struggle in this world, as we, as we, as the mess of people we are at times, God, Jesus, identifies with us. We know this from a couple passages, but one is in uh, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32. Jesus has said, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. He says, you know, if you identify with me on this earth, if you call yourself a follower of mine, I will identify with you. I mean, this is one of the reasons why Jesus was even baptized. Have you ever wondered that? Why was Jesus baptized? Well, the reason why Jesus was baptized is because he was identifying with the whole nature and the plan of God's salvation, which included sinful people and redeeming sinful people. And so he was identifying with humanity in that moment in the relationship to God, the Father. 
This is something that Jesus will do all throughout his ministry. And and there's another text here. And if you want to just hold your place right here in Acts 9 and and go back to Matthew 25. Uh, And we won't be here long, so you just keep your finger in Acts 9 because we'll come back to there. But in, in Matthew 25... We see this text of Scripture where where Jesus is talking about the final day. And the final day, this is what he says in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31. He says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And so what Jesus is saying here, He's saying when He comes back, He's going to set all things right. He's going to finally be crowned King, and there's going to be this separation of the true followers of Christ and those who denied Him and those who did not follow Him. And so He says this in verse 34, Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the earth, from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. And I was thirsty, you gave me drink. And I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? They're thinking, okay, uh, you're saying that we did these things, I don't remember doing this to you. I don't, I don't remember ever seeing you hungry, me giving you food, or, or, or giving you drink when you were thirsty visiting you in prison. Verse 40, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he's going to give the negative statement here of when it, it, the people who he judges and, and, and he says that when did we not do this to you? And he says, well, when you didn't do it to them, you didn't do it to me. What a, what a a tremendous text to show you the, the level of, of identity and the, and the, and the level of, of relationship that Jesus has with those whom he saved, he came to save. And so if you're a believer in Christ, Jesus is identifying with you. Jesus is saying, hey, hey what happens to you, he's saying happens to me in some ways. I remember when I was a uh, when I was a kid, and and uh, my my brother and I, uh, uh, my older brother, my younger brother wasn't on the scene yet, and so it was my older brother and I, and we were out in the neighborhood, and and you know as things happen, uh, particularly with boys in the neighborhood, uh, some scuffles and some tension came up in the neighborhood and things like that, and I remember, uh, you know, uh, you know, someone wanting to kind of uh, uh, do me bodily harm, if you will, right? Okay. I remember my older brother stepping up and saying, knock it off. You mess with him, you mess with me, right? And that's how my brother and I were. You know, we could be fighting at home. We could be, you know, uh, being irritated and things like that. But if once we got outside and then someone else in the neighborhood wanted to pick on one of us, it was like, wait a minute here. It, it was almost like, it was like, listen, my brother was saying, the right to, to beat my brother is mine alone, not yours, okay? All right? So he's saying, no, when you mess with him, you mess with me. In some ways, it's that way with Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus says, he says, Saul, you're persecuting me when you do this. When you're taking these women and these men and these children, you're putting them into prison, and you're trying to uh, hurt their lives and their livelihood, you're not doing that just to them. You're doing it to me. Jesus this is a way we can apply this, is that Jesus, he takes your actions towards other people personally. Have you ever thought about that? The way you treat other people and the way I treat other people, particularly other believers, Jesus takes that personally. I mean, we see this right here in the text, right? I mean, this is what he's saying that he did. And so that should give us pause, and that should really inform how we treat one another, right? And, and how we show love to one another, and instead of being negative towards each other or uh, not being willing to reconcile or whatever the case may be, you know, Jesus says, you're doing this to me. And so we need to understand that on the negative side, we need to be very careful with how we treat people because Jesus takes that personally. But on the positive side, Jesus identifying with us, it frees us to love and serve those prickly people in your life. 
okay? You see, that's, that's what, knowing that Jesus identifies with you and that person should free you and me, it should motivate for me and you to be able to, to, to serve and to love the people who are difficult in our lives because we're not just serving them. We're not just showing love to them. We're showing love to Jesus when we do that. And so if we know that, if we have that in our mind, and there's a difficult person that is just hard to get along with, and, and it's in every person's life, right? Okay, it, 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 when we think about how Jesus identifies with his followers, we should say, wait a minute here. This frees me to treat them with love and respect and to serve them because it's not just about me serving them and in, in about whether or not they deserve it. It's the question of whether or not does Jesus deserve this. You see how this identification with, with um, Jesus is so important here. And the reason why that we can love and, and serve those difficult people in our lives with the motivation of a love for Jesus that motivates us to do this is because that's exactly what Jesus did, right? Okay, Jesus loves you and me, and he sacrificed for you and me the, for the, because he had a love for the Father, right? It was his love for the Father that compelled him to go to the cross. It was his love for the Father that made him leave heaven and live this life on this earth and deal with all the suffering, all the, 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 the agony that he dealt with. It was the love for the Father that motivated that, that he could treat you and me in a way that we didn't deserve to be treated. And so the same is true. We're supposed to be like Christ. And so it should be our love for Jesus that motivates us to treat others with love and respect that may not, in our estimation, deserve it. And so we see here, in the beginning here, we see this subtle assurance, this assurance that Jesus is identifying with us and that you know, it should motivate us to treat others with love and respect. I also want to talk about today an overlooked hero, though. This is another character. So Jesus is first on the scene. We looked, about, looked at him first. We're going to save Saul to the last part of it because we want to end with that, uh, his conversion story. But there's, it, you know, there, there's another person mentioned in this story that often when we think about the conversion of Saul, we, we don't really think about him and his ministry and why it, in a lot of ways it was heroic. And of course, you probably have picked up by now that I'm talking about Ananias. Ananias was told there, we read the text already in verse 10, he, Jesus says to him, uh, verse 10 and 11, go, and he tells him right where Saul is at, he gives him the street, gives him the address, tells him where he's staying, and he says, go and give him his sight back, I'm going to use you to restore his sight, and, and I want you to, to you know, minister to him. Well, you know, there's some understandable hesitancy on Ananias' part. There's some understandable hesitancy. I mean, he, he, he says basically, you know, you know, Jesus, I, I, I've kind of heard about this guy, right? I mean, you think about this here. Saul had, had gone and gotten papers. He'd gotten legal documents that made it possible for him to take people into prison. So it was almost like he had these arrest warrants in hand. And figuratively speaking, it had Ananias' name on it, right? I mean, it was, it, he was the type of person that, that Saul was coming to Damascus. And, and we don't know exactly how the, the, the Christian uh, colony in Damascus started. There's a lot of theories on that. But there, we do know there's evidence that there was a, a good Christian uh, colony there. We know from chapter 8. In verse 1, that there was a great persecution and so that people were being scattered out and so that was definitely part of it. But people went to Damascus, 150 miles away from, from Jerusalem and, and there's a group of Christians there and, and Paul, Saul, he went there with the express purpose of arresting people just like Ananias. And so when Jesus comes to him and says, hey, here's the deal, I want you to go and I want you to help this guy out. He's like, well, I've heard about this guy. He, he's got an arrest warrant for me. Uh, more than that, think about it this way. I think it's reasonable to assume that Ananias had friends and maybe even family members who at that very moment were sitting in a jail cell because of Saul's work. It could have been a family member, could have been a close friend, and now he's concerned for their safety. He's concerned what's going to happen to them. And then Jesus says, go, he's a chosen vessel for me. You can understand his hesitancy there, but he doesn't stop there. He's got admirable faith. 
I want to point this out here because obviously we know from the text that he goes and he obeys God, and that's heroic in a sense of it, in a sense of it own in its own sense. But did you notice what the very first word was that Ananias said to Saul? Look at the text. Look at look, look at the text. It's down, I think, verse seventeen. All right. What's the first word that Ananias says to Saul? Brother. Right? He says, brother. He says, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus. He doesn't just say, hey, man, Jesus told me to get here. I'm just going to obey him and, you know, keeping his distance and stuff like that. He says, brother. Hey, think about this of like uh, how that must have been an incredible act of faith on on Ananias' part, to say, I know that Jesus can transform any heart, including this persecutor. And think about how that must have ministered to Saul's soul to hear that. I mean, don't you think Saul was a little uncertain of what was happening here? And when a Christian comes to him, one who he had been just moments before, just, just not many days before, he had been trying to persecute and, and see uh, thrown in prison and tried and hopefully killed because we're going to know from another text of Scripture because it's also in chapter 22 and chapter 26 of Acts where we see other details of this. We see there that he says that he was always voting for the death of these Christians. And so he was hauling them away into prison, and he was voting for their death every time he wanted them uh, uh, killed. And so he knows this about himself. He knows that a Christian's coming to see him, and the first word that a Christian says to him is, brother. Talk about the power of the gospel. Talk about the power of God to allow people to change their view of other people. And so... Not only that, he lays his hands on him. It's not that unusual, but he didn't have to do that. But he did. He was obedient in that. Saul couldn't see Ananias' love and compassion at first, but he felt it. He felt and he heard Ananias' love and compassion towards the persecutor. Here's the thing we can take away from this is that Ananias saw Saul the way Jesus saw him. That's why he was able to do this. No longer was he seeing Saul for the persecutor. No longer was he seeing Saul for someone who was bringing great harm to the people he loved. No longer was he seeing Saul as an obstacle. No longer was he seeing him as someone to be irritated with who just didn't get it and who deserved punishment. But in that moment when he received Jesus' word, he saw him the way Jesus saw him. And he says, brother. You know, this is so encouraging to me because this is what we are called to do. We are called to see others the way God sees them. And it's so difficult. That's one of the reasons why it's so hard to get along is because we only see people through our viewpoint and our experience. But let me tell you, if we began as a church, if we began to pray to God to help us to see everyone else the way that God sees them, I guarantee we will see us to be more compassionate, more patient, more loving, more kind, more willing to serve one another because we, we shed the view of how we see people and our irritations and the fact that they just don't get it, and the fact that they don't agree with me, or whatever the case may be, if we see them as God sees them, as people whom he loves, people who he created, people who he's working with on a daily basis, and he's drawing them and making them more conform to the image of Jesus Christ, we see people like that, then it's going to be much easier to show love, compassion, and mercy, and kindness, and long-suffering, rather than being irritated. You see, the reason why, the only reason why Ananias was able to do this, though, and this is important to understand, the only reason he was able to do this was because his love for Jesus was stronger than his fear was for Saul. You see, his love for Jesus helped him to overcome the fear of Saul. His love for Jesus helped him to overcome his preconceived notions of what Saul would be like. And, he, and that was based on fact, right? But his love for Jesus, when Jesus says, you do this, because I've done this, he did it and overcame all the fear and all the objections that he might have had in his soul. 
And the same is true for us. When we have those difficult people in our lives, or whatever the case may be, it's, it's, we know what Jesus has done, and we know what he is doing, and we know that he is patient and loving and kind, and so we should be as well. And so we say this, you will only be able to love and serve the difficult people in your life when your love for Jesus is stronger than your irritation towards them. You see, that's the key. The key is, is when we love Jesus and we say, okay, Jesus, you've called me to do this, and so I'm not going to treat them with respect and kindness. I'm not going to go out of my way to serve them because I think they deserve it or because I like them. You see, it's easy to do that for the people we like, right? It's easy to sacrifice for the people we like. It's hard to sacrifice for the people that are harsh to us. But we're called to do that. We're called to love our enemies, Right? We're called to go the extra mile. We're called to, to, to serve one another. And it doesn't say that only the people that you like or that you have similar interests with. You see, that's the beauty of the church, right? The beauty of the church is that it's not a homogeneous group of people. It's not supposed to be. Churches end up being that way a lot of times, but it's not supposed to be that way. We're supposed to be people from different backgrounds, and we're supposed to be people that have different viewpoints. And that's one of the things that I love about our church is our church has lots of different opinions and lots of different backgrounds and lots of different uh, uh, circumstances. And so there are people that I would not know. I would, my path would never cross with, paths with. I would never, uh, um, I, I would never have enough uh, similarities in my life to have a relationship with them. But by virtue of the fact that God has placed us in the same church, I have a relationship with them. And I'm a better person because of it. And hopefully they are as well. You see, the church isn't supposed to be just one type of person because God saves people from all backgrounds and all circumstances and brings us into one. And so it's the love of Jesus that I say, okay, I'm part of this church because of my love for Jesus. I'm part of this church because of what he has done for me. And as he's assembling this church and there's people that maybe have different personalities than I do or whatever the case may be, I can easily love them and serve them because my love for Jesus is stronger. That's the goal. And so Ananias is this, this overlooked hero in this story of here of how he saw Saul the way Jesus saw him and that he could serve him well. And so my encouragement to us today is to ask God to help us to see people the way God sees them. You're going to see people say and do things that just either you don't agree with or irritate you or frustrate you. And in those moments, just say, God, I'm going to see this person the way you see them. Now, I'm not saying that you never confront a person or talk to a person. I'm not saying that you never say, hey, you said this and it was difficult. I'm not, what I'm not, I'm not advocating that we never try to help people grow or point out where they're wrong. That's not what I'm advocating at all. But what I'm advocating is that you do that. When you do that, you do it out of love for Jesus and love for them souls and not, their souls and not out of irritation. See people the way Jesus sees them. Okay, so we've seen a couple things already so far. We've seen how that there is a, uh, a subtle assurance through Jesus, a relatable, or excuse me, an uh, uh, overlooked hero, and now I want to move on to this relatable conversion of Saul here. So there's a few things that, that we need to note. We need to note, first of all, how Luke describes Saul here, Okay. And I won't take time to read the whole thing because we've already done that. But, you know, talking about breathing threats and mur- uh, murder and all that, uh, this is coming out uh, from Paul's work that has already been described in chapter 8. Did you notice that he started what he says, and he's still breathing out threats and murder. He, he, this, he, what it means is, is that uh, he was continuing on from what we read in the beginning of chapter 8 uh, and how they were scattering people and hauling them off in the prison, that this was, this was continuing. It's almost like what Luke is telling Theophilus is. He's writing to him. He's saying, listen, his, his, his persecution didn't lessen. It didn't wane. It only intensified. And so, like, in weather terms, it didn't go from, a, 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 like, a tropical storm didn't go down to a tropical depression. In fact, it went the other way. It became a Cat 5 hurricane. 
And so that's, that's, what, that's what Luke is trying to say to Theophilus here. He's saying he's still doing this, and he did it even worse, and he was growing intensely in this. And you can imagine Theophilus reading this for the first time as he's going through the scroll and saying, who is this guy Saul, and, 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 and what is he like, and, and this is terrible. And we see that not only was he content with persecuting the people in Jerusalem, but he's chasing down the people who fled Jerusalem. And so he went to Damascus, and I already told you it was 150 miles away. He had the arrest warrant for them. In the way that Luke is describing him, and there's, there's a particular word here that he uses that is only used one other time, and it's the idea of almost like a, a, a deranged animal. And so Saul was so preoccupied, so fixated on stamping out these Christians that this was consuming his life. And so this is how Luke is describing him. But, so I want you to notice that about him. But there's a second thing I want you to notice, and it may take just a second to, to get you to, to, to think about it in terms, but notice that this conversion may not be as sudden as it first appears. You see, a lot of times we look at the, 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 the conversion of Saul, and it's almost like it was like just this one moment thing, and in some ways it was, and I, and I, and I can see that. But there's, there's hints in the whole narrative when we put everything together in all three places in the scriptures and in this book where Luke talks about it, that, that this, was, this was working on, that this wasn't as sudden as we might think. I won't take time to turn there, but in chapter 26, Paul is giving his own testimony about this again. And he's, he's standing before people and he's telling people about his own conversion. And he says this, and he, and he records that after when Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? He records that there was something else that Jesus said that Luke just overlooked uh, and, and, didn't, and didn't include in his uh, uh, account in chapter 9. He said that Jesus said to him, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Okay, so you can read about that in chapter 26 of Acts. Now, what does that mean? Well, in that day, that would have been a very uh, understandable term. Uh, uh, sheep herders would use long, pointed objects, sticks and things like that, that had a point to the end of it, uh, to poke and to prod uh, the, uh, the sheep to go where they want to go. And so these were called goads. And so you're familiar with that term as well, to goad someone, is to kind of poke at them and things like this. And so this is coming from a shepherding term. And it uh, would have been very common. I mean, as you know about sheep, uh, sheep are wonderful animals in a lot of ways, but they're not the smartest, right? And so uh, there's trying to keep them in the right path in the right way. It takes a lot of work on the shepherd's part. And so sometimes they use dogs and things like that, but they use staffs. But they'd also use these goats, and they would just kind of poke them and get the move in the right way and in the right direction and at the right time. And so what, what Paul says that Jesus said to him on the road, he says, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Now, why would Jesus say that? Well, the reason why Jesus said that is because he says, you know what I've been doing in your life. You know how you've been feeling the poking and the prodding. You know what's been happening here. Now, what Luke doesn't record for us in chapter 26 is what those specific goats were and what that meant. I don't know. I have my theories on it. I think it could have been doubts. I think that could have been possible that Saul, because of his, such his animosity and his, the, the amount of energy that he was putting into stamping this out was probably partially because he was trying to convince himself that this was the right thing to do. I think that he probably, in the, in the quiet moments when he laid his head down at night to go to sleep and his mind started racing and going through the day and everything that was going on, I, I think it's plausible that he had doubts about this, and then he was trying to overcome those doubts, but with more energy and more effort into his mission. That could be a possible goad. Another one is the, the, the situation with Stephen. We know that he was there with Stephen, and we know that he saw Stephen die, and we know from the text that he had the face of an angel, and we know that he heard Stephen praying for the people that were throwing stones at him. That had to have an effect on Saul. That could be a goad. Another goat could be maybe his conscience. You know, he knew in his heart of hearts, he knew as God began to work in his soul, he knew that he probably was wrong. And so I can't prove that, and I don't know that to be sure, but 
I know this for sure, that Jesus says, you're kicking against the very things I'm trying to prod you with, and it's getting hard for you, isn't it? God has this work in our lives, and sometimes we try to put it down, and sometimes we try to ignore it, and Jesus is saying, don't do it any longer, no longer. So it probably wasn't as sudden as we would might think. Notice also Saul's questions here. I don't have time to really develop these. We see one here in this text in chapter 9 where he says, Who are you, Lord? Um, that was a question he asked, and there's been a lot of debate about what did Paul or Saul mean when he used the word Lord there. Was he immediately recognizing Jesus as uh, the Messiah? Uh, that's certainly possible, uh, but more probable it was I mean, I think it's somewhere in the middle, but more probable or or equally as possible, I should say, is that uh, um, it's just another way of saying sir. And he was showing respect and he understood that whoever was talking to him was greater than him. I think when you piece everything together, I think he probably had an inclination that it was Jesus and and that he really was the Messiah. I think that it was this. But but he asked, who are you? He says, I want to know who you are because the identity of this person made all the difference in Saul's life. And so that's a good question to ask. Who is Jesus? And so who is he to you? Uh, One of the courses I teach at at my kids' school, I teach leadership courses there in my seventh grade class. I'm I'm teaching and going through the Apostles' Creed with them. And one of them, uh, one of the lines in the Apostles' Creed is, is our Lord, uh, Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And I asked the kids, I asked my students, I said, uh, so here's the question. We quote this, but is Jesus truly your Lord? Is he really your Lord? You see, that's the question we got to wrestle with is who is Jesus? Is he someone that, yes, I know that I should follow. Yes, I know culturally it's acceptable. Yes, I know in my family we all want to follow this guy. But you don't really know who he is in your life. You see, the reality is if you're going to have this conversion experience like Paul, you've got to understand of who Jesus really is. He's not just a good guy to follow. He's not just someone who did some good teachings and it's right for you to follow his teachings. He's not just someone that, that, that kind of helps you have a good moral code in life. No, he must be your Lord. And it's at that point that when Paul says, who are you? Because this is going to make all the difference in the world to me. He says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. You see, that's the question you wrestle with. Who really is Jesus? Now, uh, to you, and, and I don't care how long we've been in church. You know, like I said, this is a question I ask myself. I've been in church literally my whole life, right? Okay, I've shared this with you before. But this is a question I ask myself all the time. Who is Jesus to you, Jeremy? Who is he? Is he someone to, that helps you have a job? Is he someone that, that gives you good advice to give to people? Or is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? ask you to ask the same question, but that wasn't the only question. In chapter 22, we don't have it recorded here, but in chapter 22, we see that he says, what do you want me to do? He asked him that, and that's when he says, arise and go to Damascus, and there you'll meet Ananias on the street called Straight in the house of Judas. And so that's another equally important question for you to ask. So who are you? Who is Jesus, and what do you want me to do? What does Jesus want you to do? That should be how we frame our lives. Those should be the two questions that frame every part of our lives. Who's Jesus to us and what does he want us to do? I don't have time to keep developing that, so let me move on. I also want you to notice his response. And see, it's interesting here that he's praying, right? He's for three days and three nights. He's probably fasting during this time, and he's praying. But did you notice that this is what Jesus told Ananias? And so in verse 11, he says, Look for a man named Saul, for behold, he is praying. Now, now think about this. Think about this for a second here. Was this the first time that Paul or Saul had prayed in his life? Well, no, of course not. He was a Pharisee. He would have been, he would have been very accustomed to praying. But in some respects, it was the first time he was praying. Because no longer was it for show, no longer was it because it was expected of him, no longer was it was because he knew his Savior. When I was a youth pastor, 
down in Rockford, uh, one of the activities I would take the kids to is there were, there's, a, there's a racetrack in Rockford called Rockford Speedway. And so they have all different, you know, events and things like that. One of the things I loved when they did a school bus race, they would race these school buses in a figure eight. And, you know, of course, you know, they'd be crashing and all sorts of stuff. They had a trailer race, which was fun. And the whole goal was uh, to be the last person pulling your trailer. You're trying to knock everyone else's trailer off, you know. It was just really good hick fun, okay? You know, it was great, all right? And so, uh, but, you know, as in, in NASCAR and in that culture, they start with a word of prayer, the invocation. And I remember when I signed up and I signed our group to come and I was doing the group ticket thing and everything like this, and, and uh, the person in the ticket box said, are you a pastor? I said, yeah, yes, I'm a pastor. And they said, would you be willing to do the invocation before it starts? I said, I would be honored to do that. And so the day came, and so I walked down onto the race car track, and they handed me a microphone, and I started praying, and, and it was an unusual situation. It was, heaven, heavenly, so I'm trying to deal with the echo and all this stuff and everything, and I'm praying, and, and I just prayed and asked God for safety. I prayed gospel message in there, you know, thank you for Jesus dying and all this stuff. So then at the end, I said, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. And I walked off the track, handed the microphone to the person who was organizing the events that day, and I'll never forget the response I got. She took the microphone, and she looked at me, and she said, that was a beautiful prayer. Where did you get it? And I said, my head? You know, I, 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 I had never thought about this before. And again, this is not a statement that written prayers are wrong because I use written prayers as well in my own personal devotions and things like that. Absolutely. So this is not a knock on that. But you see, to that person, prayer was different than what prayer was, what I understood it to be. You see, prayer to me is us pouring our heart out to the Lord, as us having a conversation with God. It's not something that's prescribed. And, and, and again, I'm not against writing prayers out and reading prayers. That, that's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is that they have to come from our heart. And so this is the first time for Paul. I love this, that when Jesus points out to Ananias, hey, he's praying. And it's almost like he gets it now. He's praying he, he's talking to God in a personal way like he's never talked before. So let me ask you, what is your prayer life like? Is it, is it just quick uh, ditties to get through and move on? How many times has it happened? And it's happened to me. And I've had to confess it to the Lord. I went to pray at night or something, and I said, Father, thank you for this food. And then it dawns on me, we're not eating. I was just in mode of to pray what I pray at the dinner table or something. It's like, wait a minute, I'm not even thinking about what I'm doing here. Someone just encourage you that, that here for the first time, Saul is praying. He's talking to his God, his Lord. He's fasting here. He accepts the mission. He embraces suffering. I, I wish I could keep developing this, but I can't. I need to say this, though. I said that this is a relatable conversion. And some of you may be asking me how this is relatable, how you can relate to this. How is it that on a road to Damascus, seeing a bright light, falling down, how in the world could that be relatable? Because you're like, that's not the situation that I had. What I, mean, what I mean by relatable is not necessarily that every detail is the same. But what I am saying is that your conversion if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your conversion is just as unlikely as Saul's was. Now, we don't want to think about it that way, and we don't like to think about it that way, but it is true because the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We're born dead, and so in order for us to even have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we need Jesus Christ to do a work in us, and so it is just as unlikely. And so our conversion is just as unlikely, and here's the thing is, and this is where we really don't want to understand this reality, your sin is just as terrible as Saul's. Now, that's the one that's like, now, wait a minute here. Now, wait a minute here. 
Now, I'm not saying it was equally as effective or it affected the same amount of people or something like that, but what I am saying is that what it accomplishes in the penalty of it and the separation that it causes from God, it doesn't matter what the sin is. It doesn't matter if it was like throwing people into prison unjustly or, it just, or, or some other sin that maybe you're dealing with. The reality is the effects are the same. It is just as terrible. And so if we don't see this, if you're really chafing against this right now by me saying this, what that means is that you don't truly understand sin and how terrible it is. We're going to sing a song here in just a minute here uh, while we have the Lord's Supper here. It's the living hope. And some of the words it says is, How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. Do you really see that, that that was your condition before Christ? Or for those of you who don't know Christ, or for those of you who are still trying to figure this out, do you see that, that that is where you are at right now? How great the chasm, how high the mountain. And so... This is the effects of sin. But, so your sin was just as terrible, but God's grace was just as wonderful to you. In 1 Timothy, Paul's writing about his own conversion. He says this, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He says, you see, I'm the example of God's perfect patience that will be put on to every person who believes. And so you look at me and you say, that same patience, that same perfect patience, that same grace, that same forgiveness is being extended to you. And so, this is a work of grace. I need to wrap this up. The takeaways I would say are this, is that Jesus takes it personally when Christians do not get along. So loving and serving Jesus means loving and serving other people, not just the easy one. I also want to point out that it must be, it must be true of us that we see people the way Jesus sees people. And then finally, we need to be overcome by God's amazing grace. What, what he did for Paul that day, he was doing for you. It is available for you if you believe in him. And if you have truly believed in him, understand that it was just as unlikely for you to believe in Jesus Christ as it was for the Apostle Saul. So here's some homework, and then we'll transition to the table. Here's what we encourage you to do. I'm going to encourage you to pick one difficult person in your life and ask God to help you see them the way that God sees them. So pick one person that's a little bit difficult in your life, and I'm not going to ask you to share that. Don't post it on Facebook. Like, okay, here's my homework assignment number one. You know, Jeremy, I'm praying for you. I'm hoping that I see you the way God sees you, you know. Uh, but this is something between you and the Lord. You know, pick one person and just begin to pray for that person and ask God to help you see them the way that God sees them. Then meditate on how Jesus identifies with us. And, and specifically, answer the question in your mind, how should that truth affect your life? The fact that Jesus identifies with us, how should that have an effect on your life? You know, we're going to have the Lord's Supper here in a second here, and, and this is uh, a time for us as believers to recommit our faith to Jesus Christ, and our identity with him. We've talked about how Jesus identified with us on the cross. This is an opportunity for you to identify with him. This is an opportunity for you to come up and get a piece of bread and, and, a, and, a, and a cup of juice there, and, and, and then we'll eat and drink together and and this will be a time where we'll be, the, the, the musicians will be leading us in a song as, as this happens. But just be meditating on the fact of how good God is and how that your conversion was just as unlikely. Uh, the, take the same amount of grace, the same amount of forgiveness, the same amount of love. And because of that, we can identify with him in thanksgiving at this. And then when we see other people here at the table, we see that, wait a minute here. God is working in their lives as well. And so I should be seeing them the way God sees them, not seeing them in any other way that I might be tempted to do. So this is something we can do at the table together. I'm going to pray, and musicians are going to come, and then we're going to uh, eat and drink uh, uh, together as we close our service. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you in this way. And I, I do pray, God, I pray that we would... Uh, uh, see how great an uh, opportunity this is for us to minister, uh, to, to identify with you and to, and to uh, uh, see your ministry to us. So, Father, I pray that we would be people who are in awe of your amazing grace and this living hope that we have. And, uh, Father, I pray that we'd see others the way you see them. 
In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.